Warning, hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. This is Dan Michaels from danmichaelsaudio.com. And you're listening to Radical Russ on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. And we're going to go back to another recording from Sunday at the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Steve Bloom from Celeb Stoner and Freedom Leaf Magazine interviewed comedy legend Tommy Chong for an extended one-hour interview featured clips from Tommy's career, discussion of his pre-Cheech and Chong days as a musician, and what he's been doing lately, uh, performing with Tommy and his wife, Shelby. What's it like performing with Cheech these days, uh, all these years later? How does it go? How does the crowd re- respond? It's so much fun. It is so much fun because we've changed so much. <laughs> and we're both old. It's like grumpy old stoners. <laughs> uh, He's writing his memoirs, and he's writing down stuff that, fuck, I don't remember doing that. <laughs> it's time for him to get back at you, right? Uh, I don't know. No, no, Cheech has joined up. He, he's got his own strain out called uh, uh, Cheech's Private Stash. For real, yeah. And we're helping him with the strain. So you're competing or you're working together? No, we're, we're, he's working actually for us. We're 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 helping <laughs> It's, it's a funny story with Cheech because he didn't believe the pot thing was going to happen, you know. He thought, he, like, he was, he, he smoked pot. He was like, a, you know, a pothead. But he was, you know, he was kind of wary about it, you know. Especially when he got busted, you know. He was, his biggest fear was going to jail. His dad was a cop, so Cheech was, like, indoctrinated into that, that cop mentality thing. And so I, I went to jail. I was happy to go, man, shit. Adventure, you know. <laughs> Embedded with the troops, you know. And the, way, the reason I, I, I didn't mind going to jail is that I had a friend that we, we got into a little thing. He stole the car. And then we went on a joyride, and the car turned over in, a, in a, some water, and we all survived. And it was a real good adventure, except my friend got two years in prison. But when he come out, man, he was all buffed, looking good, you know. And I thought, fuck, I wouldn't mind doing that. <laughs> and then years later, I did it. It was, it was a trip walking through the gates, looking at the prison, thinking, oh, shit, it, it happened. But it was a great experience, you know. But Cheech, he, he's the little... He didn't want to go to prison, you know. We, we got busted one time in Tampa for obscenity. Uh, it was when Jim Morris, uh, when he was, he got arrested for showing his wiener on stage. And, <laughs> and so, so the, the hall had a $5,000 bounty. Like if, if you broke that rule, any, you know, obscenity rule in any way, you forfeit it $5,000. But to make it real, they had to arrest you, you know, to make it like a real crime. And so Cheech and I did our act, and we got arrested. Part of the reason was that we used to do dogs. Cheech would be a dog, I'd be another dog, and and we'd smell each other's butts and and try to hump each other, and the whole dog thing. And uh, and I guess. Uh, the cops, or someone, the hall owner thought, well, that's obscene. <laughs> and so they put us in jail. And when we went to jail, at first Cheech was really funny. He was joking <laughs> with the guards, you know, and making jokes. Because we, we just got off stage, and next thing you know, we're in jail. So we still had that comedic vibe going, you know. And, <laughs> and the guards weren't laughing at Cheech, you know. They are just giving him that guard look, you know. Because to them, to him, you know, Cheech is just another Mexican, you know, that got caught with drugs or something. <laughs> so, so one time this big redneck guard goes walking by and Cheech goes, uh, jail tendy, jail tendy, uh, uh, can I get some pink toilet paper? 
and the cop, the guard looked, just give him a look, you know, like, I'm going to remember you. <laughs> and so then we thought we were going to be there for like, our, you know, half hour, hour. Shit. Eight, six hours later, we're sitting there looking at each other. <laughs> and so then it was time for them to split us up, you know, now like, it looked like we were going to stay the night. And so they took Chicho by himself. <laughs> That's when Cheech changed from being a comedian to being a very scared little fucker. <laughs> a Mexican that's in a jail with a big redneck cop and going up an elevator. The Cheech's demeanor changed <laughs> quite a bit. He told me, he says, yeah. First thing he said when he got in the elevator, uh, you know, my dad's a cop. LAPD, yeah, 30 years, sergeant. So Cheech was always a little scared about being arrested. I was on the other, I loved it. I loved the adventure. I loved the people. Because I'm a people person. I study everybody. And and everybody, everybody's got a story, you know. And if you're a movie maker like I am, you want to hear that story. Because you never know what you can use. So... Right now. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll get back to talking a little bit more about Cheech in a minute, but uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit and uh, flashback to uh, Tommy being born on uh, May 24th, 1938 in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, and he was raised in Calgary. So what was it like growing up for you in Western Canada? It was interesting. It was fun, you know. It was... Um there's a John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, you know, the 30s, the Depression, the Dust Bowl, and the wagons. Yeah. My earliest, well, my mother would told me when, when I was born, my dad had bought, got some home, uh, homestead north of Edmonton. And uh, he got it for a good price, I guess. And he was quite young. And so they uh, moved out there, and there was no, no structure there. The only thing that was livable was a chicken coop. And so my first memory, I, I don't remember being in it, but my mother you know, and my dad, they cleaned out this chicken coop and made a home. And that's where we lived for a few months of my life. And then we had a move into Edmonton. I think, oh, I think my dad joined the Army. And, uh, and so moving from the chicken coop into Edmonton, uh, this is my mother telling me this, that we were on a, a horse-drawn wagon with all our furniture and everything on the wagon, and we were riding on top of the, in the back, and we had a pet crow. My mother was very good with animals, and she had a pet crow. And then we lost the crow on the way to Edmonton on the, on the wagon. And my mother would, she was a great storyteller, Irish, Scotch-Irish. And so she would tell me all these great stories about my early, early baby life, you know, my whole, whole life. And my mother was very, she was very special, very beautiful. She was five foot eight, dark haired, just gorgeous. And she had, she came from a family of like 11 brothers and sisters and, and she was the prettiest of them all. And then she got TB when she was uh, in her 20s. I was, I was about four, I guess. And then she got TB, and so she was put in a sanitarium. And my uh, brother and I were put in a home because my dad was, had some medical issues from the Army. And so we... Uh, I ended up in the hospital because they did an x-ray and found out that I had pleurisy. And so the whole family ended up in the hospital. And, that, and that's where I, I kind of got in, institutionalized, you know, right from early birth. And then I went from the hospital into a, a home, an orphanage, the Salvation Army home. And, uh, and my brother was there. He was uh, two and a half years older than me. And so he was going to school. And so he had to go through that whole rough 
being a minority, being teased, not only a minority, but a kid from the home. And the schools, they went to public school, but the school would embarrass the kids by telling the home kids, please stand, and the home kids would have to stand. And then the, the teacher would give them a, a quarter, a pint of milk, free, you know, from the government. And my, my brother had to endure that. And so he learned how to fight real, easy, real early in his life, fist fight. And he was very tough, very tough kid. And I was, I was the opposite. I was, <laughs> I was very experimental. Like I learned about electricity. We never lived, our house never had electricity, so I didn't know anything about electricity. Because we lived in a, with a kerosene lamp and a wood stove. And so when I was in the home, I found out that if you stick a, a, a needle into the wall socket, you get a shock. <laughs> and it'll hurt. <laughs> so I, that was my first thing about electricity. And my sister, we had a baby sister too. She was in the home too. And she was so beautiful because she was mixed. Like, you know, we were all mixed, we were brown, but she was especially beautiful. So she was so beautiful that the, the newspaper took pictures of her and being a tub and showing the home kids, you know, and she was the one that they used, my, my younger sister. And my brother, I would see him periodically during the day sometimes, and sometimes we'd go days without seeing him, uh, seeing each other. But he kind of, he always protected me, he kept me yeah, under his wing. And then we moved, after the home, we moved into the, the, another house with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, uh, no out, outdoor plumbing, the outhouse, and, and that's where I grew up. That was my earliest, uh, uh, you know, um, I guess age six to 13. I grew up like in, uh, in that environment. And that's where I learned, you know, how to, how to love nature because, <laughs> you know, there were no parks. There was just the fields, and the fields were just filled with everything any kid would need. And then if you walked across this field, there would be a little foothills with some pine, uh, poplar trees growing, and that was the only tree that I, we could see about a mile from our house. When I was a kid, I used to... My mother would pack a lunch for me, and I'd go off on a hike to the, the groves and climb the trees and, and just play in, play in nature. And nature is so beautiful. You learn so much. And, and that's the way I grew up. So you uh, got into music uh, at a young age, right? Same, same age. Uh, uh, there was a fiddle player that lived across the field from us. And uh, my mother had a, when, when she was carrying me as a baby, she, she bought a guitar. And she used to hold it against her stomach and strum it. She couldn't play it, but she'd just strum the guitar. And just, she never learned to play. But, and so at, when I got around 10 years old, I picked up this guitar and I started playing. Learned how to play it. I really wanted to play the fiddle. But and my dad... And my mom, they bought me a fiddle, but I, I couldn't tune it. But I could tune the guitar, so I, I ended up playing guitar with the fiddle player that lived across the way. So I was 10 years old, and I was sitting and playing an all-night party, a dance party. And it was, that's where I learned the basic music, you know. He taught me two things. He said, uh, keep it simple and give the people what they want. That works for everything. <laughs> Tommy Chong at the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference, sitting down with Steve Bloom of CelebStoner.com and editor of Freedom Leaf Magazine. We're going to take a short break and pay some of the bills here and remind you that you can help us pay the bills at the Russ Belleville Show. Just send me an email, RadicalRuss at gmail.com. We've got all sorts of interesting advertising and sponsorship opportunities we're already speaking with uh, a couple of groups out there that want to help us out with our website redesign we've got all sorts of ways of making those kind of things happen so if you're interested send me an email radicalrust at gmail.com 
take a break. And when we come back, Leland Berger on new extract regulations for the state of Oregon. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Most of us pirates, we go on vacation to North Dakota, you know, because they've got a town called Argusville. What are you smoking there, boy? This is Dan Michaels from danmichaelsaudio.com, and you're listening to Radical Russ on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're still unpacking the audio from the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Got another clip for you coming to you from one of the panels that was on extracts, and one of the state's leading experts, Leland Berger, who's an attorney with Oregon Cannabis Compliance Council, spoke on the new laws and regulations on both the OLCC and the OHA side with respect to making extracts, which in Oregon are defined as those made with hydrocarbon extraction techniques. Uh, next is Lee Berger to speak about extracts. Um. Hi. I want to uh, segue a little bit into um, extraction by talking about a little more about the processing stuff, if I can, or the concentrates, um, and also about the dosage limits. Uh, you know, one activist who's not here, who's a, is a lawyer, is uh, Amy Margolis. And despite the differences that many of us have with her on many policy decisions, she at the Medical Rules Advisory Committee really stood up for us on these dosage limits. And, and basically what happened was the health authority tried to find a balance between Amy's arguments and the arguments from a group that showed up you know, at the very last minute with the OLCC, the pediatric emergency room physicians who are all, what about the children? And, you know, so... It, it, OLCC or OHA has struck this balance. I'm, I'm hopeful that they, you know, with adequate um, public comment, we might be able to, to move them. But um, I think at least in the short term, we may well be stuck with what are the, the lowest dosage limits uh, anywhere for adults. And, uh, and it's just going to be one of those things, as many legislators certainly tell me, that, you know, we just need to to wait and it'll be phased in. Uh, about 10 days ago, I was in uh, Baltimore at the uh, Patients Out of Time conference and uh, on the day when Pennsylvania signed uh, the medical marijuana law and became the 24th medical marijuana state in Pennsylvania, they're going to study whether to have flowers for two years and then they'll begin to implement that. So. The fact is, we are moving at a fast pace. I know it doesn't feel that way sometimes, but it is. The second thing I wanted to mention was about concentrates is that um, on the um, homegrown, um, you know, the four plants, eight ounces that all adults are allowed to cultivate, we're also allowed to create and share concentrates. When we were drafting Measure 91, I called this the... Um, I want, you know, when we have a potluck dinner, I want to be able to bring dessert, right? So it's, it's really, it's, there isn't any prohibition on, on that. Um, what there is a prohibition on is on extraction. And it's an unfortunate reality because the reality is that hundreds, perhaps thousands of patients and growers were safely blasting butane hash and a couple of idiots blew up houses or a bathroom at a gas station. And it's the kind of thing that created a, a, a place where the legislature reacted to it the way, that, um, the way that we created the Medical Marijuana Act, which is that if you have a license, then you're accepted from arrest and prosecution. But if you don't have a license, it's still a serious crime. In fact, in the reclassification um, of crimes that uh, both Floyd and I spoke about, the uh, one exception is the unlawful manufacture of marijuana that involves um, 
extracting, uh, that involves unlicensed extracting. And that went into effect because although we used to, back in the day, only use the uh, emergency clause, which makes a law effective on passage when it really, no kidding, was an emergency, now the legislature does it all the time so that we can't do a referendum, basically, is the only good reason for that. And so that went into effect March 1st, that you couldn't uh, process unless you had a license, except nobody could have a license because they weren't accepting applications until April 1st. Anybody here get caught in that clusterfuck? My God, how fast are things moving when the legislature, intending to not make you a criminal, makes you a criminal? So I was involved a little bit as a part of, I'm legal counsel for, I think it's the Oregon Extractors Association, in, um, in, in, in trying to resolve that to make it so that it was like, you know, being a patient that upon application, and then of course, since it's the OHA, they made a completed application, then you have the protection of the, of the law. But, you know, that was a, that was a huge, uh, problem. Speaking of law violations, just to go a little off topic if I could, you know, one thing I've been trying to do over the last five years is to transform my practice from, uh, you know, Cedar mentioned um, that I had represented, I was honored to represent him years ago. And, uh, but, you know, I don't like really doing criminal stuff anymore. And I, the reason I did work for 20 years to end uh, cannabis prohibition was to get out of doing criminal law, to be able to sit around the table and conspire about how to cultivate and, and extract and, and um, distribute legally instead of hearing sad stories from, from nice people about how you know, their interaction with the government included a raid in their home. And, but lately there's been an uptick in my practice of uh, driving under the influence of cannabis. So I want to remind everybody that it's against the law to drive under the influence of cannabis. Floyd also mentioned that we included in the Measure 91 three times that the Measure 91 made no changes to the medical law. We also included that it made no changes to the driving under the influence law. We gave that to the OLCC, and the OLCC is required to report to the legislature in 2017. And my good news for today is that I think they're likely to recommend that that policy be continued and that we're not likely to become a per se state where they take you and, and forcibly draw your blood. I'm really hopeful about that. Thank you. And, and, but, um, you know, driving under the influence doesn't mean, you know, I'm all fucked up. It means that you are impaired to a perceptible degree. It means if you look like you're really impaired, then it's a problem. And in the cases, what I see are these sorts of problems, and so here's my free legal advice about driving under the influence. The first is STFU. Does everybody know what that means? <laughs> it means shut the fuck up. Because, it, and, and actually my friend Jeff Steinborn, who's kind of like the dean of cannabis lawyers in the Northwest, he's graduated from Yale Law School in 1969, he's in Seattle. What he says to tell the officer is, my lawyer said he'll charge me double if I speak to you. As much as I'd like to answer your questions, I can't afford to. That puts everybody at ease. Um, the second thing is, you know, all of us cannabis criminal lawyers have for years been saying, yes, P, no, DRE. What happens is you are invited to take field sobriety tests. If they determine that they have probable cause to believe that you're under the influence, they take you to the station. They ask you to take a breath test. If it blows zero, zero, they ask you to provide a urine sample. As with the breath test, if you don't provide a urine sample, your license is suspended. You have a right to an administrative hearing, but unless there's some um, illegality by the police in the way that they obtain the sample, the suspension is likely to be upheld. All that the urine testing does, however, is show past use. It doesn't quantify when you had previously used. The drug recognition exam is problematic and it's, it's complicated and it's certainly way beyond the topic of this conversation, but generally the advice that criminal lawyers have is you, you have a right to refuse it, that right cannot be held against you, and um, it's okay to refuse the DRE. Um, 
I'm trying to think. The, I, you know, I think, I, I, I think I'm pretty comfortable. Um, oh, one really exciting thing that the legislature did in response to uh, the medical industry is, or not the medical industry, but in the medical marijuana movement, is um, it allowed patients to take their medicine to processors and have the processors process it and return the processed medicine to the patient. And, uh, you know, uh, Pete and I were talking about it, and as best, and help me if I'm misstating this, Floyd, but as best I recall, at least in statute, that applies both to OHA licenses and to OLCC licenses. And so I guess the very last thing I'll say is, you know, I said early on that I thought we had accomplished in Oregon um, the best melding of the medical system and the adult use system with the least harm to patients. But where it's really pretty ridiculous is in processing. Processing for medical grade oil is exactly the same as processing for adult use oil. There's no reason on God's green earth why we should have to pay $4,000 twice to be able to supply both markets. And I guess so the last thought I would leave you with is that as with you know, we're in this exciting transitional time, and it's really, you know, you could get the medical license until you get the adult use license, because when you have the adult use license, you're able, as I mentioned, to, I think, to be able to sell to patients. I think the OCC is likely to adopt rules that would permit that. Um, and you can sell, you know, to medical dispensaries, you know, as long as they continue to exist. So um, I, that's it. I'm... I'm, I'm you know, I'll be here to answer other specific questions that you have. Thank you very much. That's Leland Berger from Oregon Cannabis Compliance Council speaking at the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference in Eugene, Oregon at the Hilton downtown in Eugene just this last Sunday. We'll have more of the panels and panelists from that conference uploaded to my SoundCloud page later on in the week. Follow me at Radical Russ on Twitter and Facebook if you want to get the updates on when those things will be posted. We're going to take a break and pay some more of the bills. Plus, a schedule reminder, uh, there will be no Stoner Jesus show tonight. Uh, Stoner Jesus having some tech issues, even in Stoner Heaven. So we'll have a replay, and you can catch all the stonerjesus.net stuff uh, out there as well. We'll come back and uh, shut down the shop when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. As we close up shop today, one last word about the presidential contest. The news today, of course, is uh, that Ted Cruz has announced that his vice presidential selection will be Carly Fiorina. The former Republican candidate, the former CEO of Hewlett-Packard Computers. And uh, there's an article up on Leafly today. Vice President Carly Fiorina would be a cannabis catastrophe. My thanks to Ben Adlin for citing a quote of mine. Uh, as I wrote in a column uh, addressed to Carly Fiorina, I wrote this on MarijuanaPolitics.com, when she brazenly in that uh, Republican debate, uh, when confronted with a question about marijuana legalization, brought up the death of her daughter, her stepdaughter, uh, from drug abuse. Now, her stepdaughter died from highly addictive substances, alcohol and prescription pills, I believe it was. But uh, Fiorina was shamelessly using that as a what about the children pander to get people to fear marijuana legalization. Now, Ted Cruz, we know, is at least espousing a state's rights ish, uh, artic, uh, a state's rights platform, excuse me, with respect to the marijuana legalization question, saying that 
If there was a referendum on it in Texas, he'd vote against it. But if Colorado wants to be legal, well, that's up to Colorado. And we are pretty happy that none of the remaining candidates is really rabidly anti-pot. But with the selection of someone like Carly Fiorina by Ted Cruz, it has to make you question whether he would shift and be a little more anti-pot if elected. That's all the time we got for today. Thanks for joining us for this live edition of the Russ Belville Show from Anderson, South Carolina. We'll be in Columbia, South Carolina tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. If you're in the Columbia area, come on by and join us for the Unity Cipher Ceremony. We're passing the torch all the way down the East Coast in celebration of cannabis activism and awareness to end prohibition throughout the East Coast. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. While humans have been using cannabis for medicinal purposes for over 5,000 years, medical science is only beginning to unlock the secrets of the endocannabinoid system and the promise of cannabinoid medicines. Join us now for the latest cannabinoid medicine update. We take you back to the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Took place this Sunday where Dr. Carl Hart from Columbia University, a neuropsychopharmacologist of great renown, the author of High Price, he spoke to the crowd delivering a stunning keynote address. We bring you a highlight now. What I'd like to do is, is, is to go through a few drugs and show you how we have exaggerated the harmful effects. And I'm going to start with crack cocaine. Now, crack, uh, if you focus your attention on the left side of the graph, that's powder cocaine. Go back to the right side of the graph, that's crack cocaine. Go back to the right and focus on the red circle. The red circle is a hydrochloride group. It's a salt, basically. It's the only difference between crack and powder cocaine. That hydrochloride group prevents the cocaine from being smoked. If you want to smoke cocaine, you have to remove that hydrochloride group. And that's what you do with crack. Now, otherwise, the drugs are the same. Now, that hydrochloride group does not produce any pharmacological effect. It doesn't have any biological effects. So the effects of these two drugs are identical. Now this is what we have discovered from doing studies with these drugs in the lab with people, and we've done a number of studies. Now, it is true, when you smoke crack cocaine, the effects are produced more rapidly and they are more intense than snorting powder cocaine. But when you dissolve powder cocaine in water and you shoot it intravenously, the intensity of the effect and the onset of the effects are identical to smoking crack cocaine. The bottom line, they are the same drug. But the public has been misled to believe that crack is more dangerous. And this has led to legislation that punishes crack cocaine more harshly than powder cocaine. And we'll come back to that. But I want to go to another drug that you all are familiar with here in the West, methamphetamine. Again, focus your attention on the left. That's amphetamine or deamphetamine. That's the compound that is in Adderall. Some of you all might know Adderall. Focus your attention back to the right. That's methamphetamine. The only difference between these two drugs is that circle. That circle is a methyl group. That additional methyl group makes it methamphetamine. People have suggested, including scientists, they have suggested that the addition of this methyl groups makes 
methamphetamine, more lipid soluble. That is, it gets into the brain more rapidly. It produces a more intense effect. It's more addictive. It's more dangerous and so forth. So we did a study along with a number of other people now. We did a study in which we compared the drugs in the same people under double-blind conditions because I didn't, ha I didn't see any evidence that suggested that methamphetamine was more dangerous, more addictive, and so forth than amphetamine. So we did a study, brought people into the lab under double-blind conditions, and we gave them these drugs on different days. What we found is that the drugs produced identical effects on behavior, on physiology, on cognitive function. They are the same drug. So when we think about Adderall and we think about methamphetamine, they are the same drug. In fact, both drugs are approved by the FDA to treat attention deficit disorder. Some of you all may have known that. And some of you all may know that our military uses amphetamine for soldiers to keep them awake so they can fight better and drop bombs longer, right? Some of you all know this? You, you all with me? All right, all right, all right, okay. But, okay, but still, we, have, we still have this belief about methamphetamine. For example, people who abuse methamphetamine, they don't have a prescription from their physician. They're not being taken care of by a physician. And methamphetamine may be causing some damage to their brains. That's what we've been told. And on the slide, I have a picture of brain imaging. On the left, that's a picture of someone who has not used methamphetamine. On the right, that's a picture of someone who has used methamphetamine. And typically, if you're in a scientific talk about this, the speaker would say, you can see the difference between these two, these two brain images. You see on the, on the left, the image is brighter. And that, to you, they would say, indicates that the folks who are using methamphetamine have some sort of brain damage. There is some evidence that when you give methamphetamine or amphetamine, any amphetamine, at large doses to naive animals, you can destroy brain cells. Just like you can destroy brain cells and even the animal if you give nicotine at large doses. But nonetheless, the idea is that these images tell you something about people's function. They don't. And this is not data because I can image people on this side of the room and can compare them with folks on this side of the room and find some differences. But when I see those differences, I won't say that the people on this side of the room is cognitively impaired or has brain damage. That would be inappropriate without actually testing them for cognitive function and so forth. Because with humans, there's a wide variation of what our brains look like. This wide variation sometimes is not taken into account when we have these kind of findings with drug users. Now, this concern that I have about methamphetamine, particularly with brain imaging and cognitive function, led me to review that entire literature. I published a paper a few years ago about that review, and what I concluded was this, is that methamphetamine users, illicit methamphetamine users, when it comes to their cognitive functioning, they are normal. Their cognitive functioning is normal. And when it comes to their brain, in terms of brain damage and how, they, and, and how uh, their brains compare with folks who haven't used methamphetamine, again, they are within the normal range. Despite the fact that researchers have had this propensity to interpret any difference as some clinically significant abnormality, that's inappropriate. Now we are doing a similar sort of thing with heroin in the country. The country at the moment is losing its mind about heroin, particularly when it comes to heroin overdoses. What you all should know is that people rarely, I mean rarely die from a heroin-only overdose. 75% of the people who die from a heroin or any opioid-related death do so because they combine it with another sedative like alcohol, like a benzodiazepine, 75% or so. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that our public health message is kind of simple. It's not the opiate. That's a difficult thing to do. I mean, it's possible, but our public health message is simple. 
if you're going to use an opiate, don't combine it with another sedative. But that's not what we do in our country. We are not providing sound public health information or rational public health information. Another sort of thing that we can simply do when it comes to these opioids, we can simply make sure that we have the availability of the opioid antagonist, naloxone, so we can just simply reverse the effects of overdose. This is quite simple. Now, when it comes to cannabis, you all are familiar with many of the exaggerations as it, becomes, as it relates to cannabis. There is a journal called The Lancet. The Lancet is a really good journal, medical journal. It seems like every edition, there is a paper, a study, showing that cannabis causes psychosis. You all familiar with this? Seems like every, every, every issue, there is, there, there, this, this belief is perpetuated in that journal. So this concerned us, my colleague, Charlie Consider and I, so we reviewed the literature on cannabis and psychosis, and we recently published a paper. What we concluded, we concluded that the correlation between cannabis use and psychosis is not specific, either with regard to the chemicals found in cannabis or with regard to psychosis as opposed to other psychiatric disorders. What does that mean? That means, as in terms of the chemicals, when you look at amphetamine, when you look at tobacco, the relationship between amphetamine and tobacco and, can and, and, and psychosis is stronger than the relationship with cannabis and psychosis. Now, these are just correlations, but, but that's a fact. And then also, when you look at other psychiatric disorders, the relationship between these drugs and depression, anxiety, are stronger than, relationship, than that relationship with psychosis. So what that tells you is that when people are talking about the relationship between cannabis and psychosis and they don't mention tobacco, amphetamines, they don't mention those other psychiatric disorders, you, it's a license for you to stop listening because they think either they think that you're an idiot or they are an idiot. So you don't need to listen any further. So another sort of thing that I've learned along my journey is that we have used the enforcement of our drug policy as racial discrimination policy. It's a way to racially discriminate. Now, I want to come back to crack cocaine as I pointed out that they're cracked and powdered, they're the same drug. But in 1986 and extended in 1988, we passed some of the harshest drug laws in the country, where we punish crack cocaine violations a hundred times more harshly than powder cocaine violations. That is, people caught with small amounts of crack cocaine were required to go to jail for a mandatory minimum sentence of five years for having small amounts of crack cocaine. This led to this horrible statistic. More than 80% of the people convicted under these laws were black even though black people were not the majority of the crack users. That's one thing. This came to light in 1994, when the U.S. Sentencing Commission did this uh, comprehensive study, and once they did, when they did the study, they said, oh, wow, this is going on, we need to change the law. The U.S. Sentencing Commission, they decide what the punishment for violations will be in the country. And when they make a recommendation, it becomes law, except in this case. In this case, Congress and Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, rejected that re recommendation. First time the U.S. Sentencing Commission's recommendations were rejected. Bill Clinton said in response why he decided to reject that recommendation. He said, we have to send a constant message to our children that drugs are illegal, drugs are dangerous, drugs may cost you your life, and the penalty for dealing drugs are severe. But we're not only, we weren't only talking about drug dealing in this case, we're talking about people caught with simple possession as well. But that's what Bill Clinton said. Fast forward 12 years to 2007, when presidential candidate Barack Obama was running for the White House. 
speaking before Howard University, uh, that's a black university, he said about this differential treatment, he said, judges think that's wrong, Republicans think that's wrong, Democrats think that's wrong, and yet it's been approved by Republican and Democratic presidents because no one has been willing to, to brave the politics and make it right. That will change when I'm president. Did it change? Well, in the Obama way, kind of, right? In 2007, 2010, uh, President Obama signed into law the Fair Sentencing Act that decreased the disparity from 100 to 1 to, to 18 to 1. So now, today, crack cocaine is punished 18 times more harshly than powder cocaine. Recall that I said they are the same drug. It would be like punishing people who smoke cannabis a hundred times more harshly than those who use it, uh, who take it in their brownies. That's what it would be like. Now, on this sort of change, I think Brother Malcolm X spoke posthumously to this issue when he said, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there is no progress. And then when you consider that today, 2016, the numbers, when we look at the people who are being arrested for the same... That's the amazing Dr. Carl Hart speaking at the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference in Eugene, Oregon this last Sunday. Uh, I'll have his entire speech up soon, eventually. Uh, I'll find some time to get that done. But uh, I got that clip for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned because we got another clip coming up here in hour two. This one with CelebStoner.com and Freedom Leaf editor Steve Bloom interviewing Tommy Chong. You'll get to hear about early Tommy Chong, Cheech and Chong uh, stories and more coming up in hour two from the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Plus, Oregon attorney Leland Berger discussing extracts and the new regulations on that in the state of Oregon. Plus your calls at 971-533-7111. For everyone here in South Carolina, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Now, it's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Or you can tell. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Portland, Oregon, at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the enema man and Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of Ganja Graphics, the sultan of Sativa Statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. Oh, thank you very much. Welcome back, everybody. 7 o'clock here in the Eastern Time Zone. I'm hanging out in 
South Carolina, or South Kakalaki, I understand, is acceptable. <laughs> oh, again, it's my first time here in the South and really enjoying it so far. Tomorrow morning, got to get up early because we're making our way to the capital of the Palmetto State. We're going to Columbia, South Carolina, myself and Big Daddy Fink getting in the old vehicle and driving a couple hours in the early morning to meet with the Unity Torch in Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of South Carolina. We'll be doing our event from there. I might be speaking. I might not. Apparently, this is a very ad hoc, unpermitted sort of thing. So we'll see what happens, and let's see if I can avoid needing any bail money. That would probably be a good idea. <laughs> but that'll be tomorrow, and uh, we should be back from uh, from the capital back to our home base in time for me to get some audio from the event up on tomorrow's show. So we're looking forward to that. And then uh, Friday, I will be making my way to Atlanta, Georgia, where we will be a part of the event there. That event takes place around noon in Centennial Park on Friday, and it's a, apparently some sort of walk slash march, and we'll get more recordings and pictures from all of that. You can always find all of my information at Radical Russ everywhere online through Google Photos, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and more. So uh, check that out. Also on Pinterest, uh, I, all the graphs and data that I find as I'm surfing the net and uh, researching my stories, I pin those up on Pinterest. I know a lot of people may not know Pinterest unless you're uh, you know, shopping or whatever, but uh, I th I've found it very useful for sharing uh, data graphs, so you can check that out as well. Coming up on this hour of the show, we have got great audio coming to you from Tommy Chong's interview with Steve Bloom from CelebStoner.com and Freedom Leaf magazine. That'll be coming up about 24 after on the clock. Plus, we've got Leland Berger, who's a well-known, prominent marijuana attorney in Portland, Oregon. He spoke at the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference on a panel having to do with producers, processors, and extractors, and gives us the lowdown on the latest rules and regulations and licensing with uh, respect to extracts in the state of Oregon. So stay tuned for that. Plus, uh, we'll have time at the end for some ranting and raving, I'm sure. But uh, before we get to all of that, I just wanted to uh, discuss a little bit about the Adult Use of Marijuana Act in California, because once again, uh, I've had to go through another online tussle with some of the people that just they're just madly against legalizing marijuana in California. They do not like this adult use of marijuana act. And I get called also all sorts of names for being in support of, you know, ending my criminality and your criminality for most of you. But uh, California is going to be a special battle because of how lenient their medical marijuana system already is. So not only do you have a situation where there's a whole bunch of people who already feel like they're legal and, and feel like they're special, I think is another big part of this. There's a there's a, a cliquish kind of feeling to it. Like, I'm a patient, I'm special, I'm protected. And that's being threatened. They feel it's being threatened. Almost as if everybody's going to be let into their little club. And... It's so easy for someone to get a medical marijuana recommendation in California. And if you're in one of the locations where you have access, well, maybe you're pretty reticent to rock the boat. Well, when we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, dispel this notion that marijuana is somehow legal in the state of California already. You can talk about it, too, if you want. Phone lines are open for you at 971-533-7111. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Pod 2.0. It's not your father's Woodstock weed. <laughs> this is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, and uh, I've been going through my Facebook feed and uh, Twitter feed as of late, getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention from the Stoners Against Legalization. I hate it when I call them that, so I, I will keep doing it. 
But uh, lately, it's been some of the, the wackest complaints about the Adult Use of Marijuana Act in California. Just absolutely nonsensical sort of complaints. Uh, one that I heard today from a woman named Denise uh, asked with many uh, exclamation points and question marks. It asked me why in the world the Adult Use of Marijuana Act has a label on it that says marijuana is harmful. So, you know me, I look shit up. I went to the section. It's uh, 26120 uh, in the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Uh, I believe it was section C, paragraph one, something like that, 1A. Uh, But it's the mandated label that they're going to put on marijuana products, right? And it says, you know, don't drive, operating heavy machinery, yada, yada, yada. It's for adults. And then there's one sentence. And this one got actually got amended. This was added to the most recent version of the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, and it was that cannabis is harmful for pregnant women, pregnant or breastfeeding women, right? And that's what she's up in arms about, is this cannabis is harmful for pregnant or breastfeeding women part. Now, I'm not really supportive of that statement. I think there's a long way to go before we've proven harm to pregnant women, to their fetus, to their infant, uh, to breastfeeding, right? I, I think there's very many medical benefits for a pregnant mother, especially if we're dealing with the trade-off of one a pregnant mother who's got hyperemesis, who's you know extreme vomiting from morning sickness, and the pharmaceuticals you'd have to give her to deal with that would be more harmful than the cannabis she could take. On the other hand, I'm not one to say also that there's absolutely no negative effect. I'm just saying we haven't gotten enough real valid evidence yet. What we found from Melanie Dreyer's studies in the 70s didn't seem to include any major problems. And I tend to think that if there are major problems for pregnant women uh, and, and young infants from breastfeeding, from uh, you know newborns, if there were any such problem through history, we would have seen the results. We would no longer have Rastafarians. They would, there'd be no Rastafarian kids. They, they just would have died out, right? There'd be no hippie kids, right? I mean, come on. (laughs) Regardless, the fact that that part's in there, that there's going to be some warning about pregnant women and breastfeeding, right? That's your deal breaker? That's going to make you want to oppose legalizing marijuana? What, are your bongs for tobacco use only as well? You're going to let one little line on a warning label Dictate whether or not legalization should pass in the world's fifth largest economy, whether or not we should finally kick down the Berlin Wall of Prohibition and finally end this nightmare, not just for California, but by legalizing in California, ending this nightmare nationwide. Once California falls, the rest of the states have to. That's just the nature of the beast. It's going to be the way it is. Texas doesn't get there until California legalizes. Kentucky doesn't get there until California legalizes. Iowa doesn't get there until California legalizes. So I'm amenable to reason. I'm willing to listen to complaints about the Adult Use of Marijuana Act that would justify maintaining the status quo. Now, of course, for some people who've got theirs, You've got their medical marijuana protection. Justifying the status quo is fine, right? Hey, man, just go get your $40 recommendation, man. You'll be fine, man. You'd have an ounce and grow some plants. So everything would be cool, man. Except it's not everywhere in California. There's a lot of places where there's bans and there's contradictory language and moratoriums and problems. And never mind the fact people still get ticketed and people still get arrested And people still go to jail, even in California, for marijuana being legal, being illegal. Never mind all that. These people are willing to maintain that and to hand to prohibitionists. Can you imagine the wet dream that will be fulfilled for Kevin Sabet if California, for the second time, fails to pass marijuana legalization in the past 10 years? That will be the rallying cry for the entire anti-marijuana legalization movement. We've turned them back 
After four states have legalized, Ohio rejected it, and now California's rejected it. The tide is turned. I could write the Project Sam headlines myself. So to hear these complaints, another complaint was, if, if we can't all grow 99 plants, it's not legalization. Well, newsflash, no place on earth has legalization then. I guess when I go back to Portland, Oregon, and I walk into my local pot shop and I buy my high-grade half-ounce of cannabis for $75 and I take it back in my pocket and walk by cops and walk by dogs and go to my house and smoke it and nobody cares and that's completely legal, I guess that's an illusion. I guess that was all just in my hazy, stoned mind, because since I can't grow 99 plants in Oregon, well, then it's not truly legal. Oh, and by the way, um, in Oregon, there's no amount of marijuana you can possess and get a felony. You cannot get a felony for marijuana possession, no matter how much you possess in the state of Oregon. Just, Just so you knew that. But it's not legal here. Certainly not legal here because we can't have 99 plants. So I hear these complaints uh, from people about the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, and they just don't even pass the sniff test. The only thing I can find in the Adult Use of Marijuana Act that makes things worse for cannabis consumers than they are now, and that for me is the litmus test. Does it make cannabis consumers' life worse? And the only thing I find in the Adult Use of Marijuana Act that gets worse is the public toking penalty. Public toking goes from $100 to $250 for the fine. That gets worse. The other thing that gets worse, there is, uh, I believe, an open container provision. If you're caught with an open container of weed, meaning, you know, an open baggie or a lit pipe or a joint or anything that's, you know, smokable with inside the car, then you can get a fine for that too, I think. So those are the kind of things that people want to hold up and say, ah, see, now we got to vote against it. That's just, that's just a way to prosecute people. Oh, and the conspiracy theories I get. Oh, the conspiracy theories that I'm being paid off by this person or that person to support this or that. Folks, Here's something you can guarantee about me. I am for every legalization there is. I am for every reform that even helps one cannabis consumer avoid jail, avoid losing their stuff, avoid losing their health. That's why I even support these CBD-only laws, which don't do anybody a spot of good. And I know there's people out there that disagree with me. You know, uh, the team Alexis and stuff that, you know, say no to CBD laws. And I understand why, but I think even those laws move the rhetoric forward. They move the ball forward in some small way to get these states to begrudgingly admit that, yes, there is something medical about this. And once that's been admitted, once there is something beneficial about marijuana, even if it's just the CBD in it. Once there's something beneficial about it, we've changed the entire framing of the debate. You know me, I'm all about the framing. The actual arguments you're making aren't as important as the arena you're making them in. And for so long, we've had to fight within the framing of the prohibitionists that marijuana was this demon drug, demon reefers, gateway drug, gun legion heroin, nothing good about it. It's terrible. It's a habit. It's icky. It's the province of stoners and losers and long hairs and artists and hippies and wackos and bikers and so forth. And even, of course, going back to the racist elements with, you know, Harry Anslinger and makes the uh, white woman want to have sexual relations with Negroes and entertainers as if you needed marijuana for that. But it makes it a a different battle when we're not fighting in that arena anymore, when we're not dealing with that. Once you've admitted some medical benefit, some benefit, just period, a benefit of marijuana, we've changed the arena. And and the arena changes the more the people see that kids get benefit from it and that everyday working class people get benefit from it and rich people and celebrities get benefit from it. 
We've changed the entire framing of the argument. See, in the arena where it's the demon reefer, then there's rhetorical and moral justification for punishing the people involved with it. Once it becomes something of benefit to anybody for some reason, now it's harder to justify punishing people for it for any reason. It's like taking a a hockey stick on the football field. It doesn't fit in that arena anymore. It doesn't work in that argument anymore. It doesn't make the same sort of root gut level emotional sense to the audience anymore. And that's happening. Even things like Cheech and Chong made a difference by taking it from demon reefer to at least just being comical. Every move has helped us. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. There you go. That was the last pro-cannabis president. Jimmy Carter. Got to say that uh, Obama's at least been neutral. At least he hasn't gotten in the way of legalization. That's helpful. Happy 420, everybody. Back on the West Coast. I'm Radical Russ in South Carolina. We'll be right back with Steve Bloom interviewing Tommy Chong from the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. 